Hello and welcome to the Female Athlete Podcast for women who want to learn more about their bodies. With me, Lucy Lomax. Me, Georgie Brimvals. And me, Jess Piasecki. For today's episode, it's part two, and we'll be continuing to focus on menstrual dysfunctions. For this episode, we're covering heavy menstrual bleeding, polycystic ovarian syndrome, premenstrual syndrome, and premenstrual dysphoric disorder, also known as PMDD. And we'll be speaking to researcher and physiologist Jess Freemass, who suffers from PMDD, about how the disorder affects her and how she's learned to manage it. You know, everyone gets PMS, which which is maybe true. Like, a lot of people have symptoms, and you can have PM, pretty bad PMS symptoms and not be PMDD. But, I mean, if you're having symptoms longer than seven days, five to seven days, and they're persisting, like, it's definitely just not normal, really. And I remember my friend who was studying nursing came into my room one day and sat down next to me and was like, Jess, we just learned about premenstrual dysphoric disorder. I think you have it. And I immediately looked it up and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing because I just felt like finally I'm not a crazy person. I can like, this is everything that I, that PMDD was. I had all these symptoms and I just felt like so good to be able to figure out that yes, this is not normal. Yes, I have a disorder because my friends are not feeling the same way. However, before we head to the interview, first things first, Georgie and Jess, what have been your highlights or talking points from the past week or so? So my highlight this week um, was actually I came across an article, um, I think it was The Guardian, who had highlighted that women's sport actually dominates the list of Australians' favourite teams. So I think there was um, some market research done um, with the fans in Australia, so sports fans and who they could most sort of relate to um, and appreciate, like what sports teams. And it was the women's teams that actually trumped the men's teams, and um, particularly their, um, I think the cricket team over there was quite popular. Um, even though the, the men's team was still very well acknowledged, um, it was just nice to see that the women's team, the fans had a real sense of familiarity with them. Um, and perhaps acknowledge that they might be balancing full-time work um, as well as trying to, you know, train professionally at the same time and others might be um, balancing families and things as well. So I think that was just really nice to see and something quite positive amidst all of the, the chaos that's going on at the moment. Georgie, did you have any highlights today? It's more of a, I guess... Um, internal highlight, one of our um, uh, contacts actually at Orico um, reached out to me a few days ago um, to tell me that across their specific sports setup, they're doing regular um, temperature screening alongside COVID symptom screening just to reduce risk, especially when they actually return to play. Um, and she asked me whether um, there was going to be or whether there should be an awareness around the natural basal body temperature increase that occurs around ovulation. Um, and I was just so delighted to hear someone thinking about that because that is a massive factor for consideration in my eyes. We know that um, basal body temperature can significantly increase and in, by up to two degrees Fahrenheit in in some women and it's effectively uh, an athlete can be turned away at the training ground if this isn't factored in so I think it's so brilliant that people are actually stepping back and thinking about this now so that was also a big highlight for me. On that actually Georgie I have a question for you um, so do we know though like the temperature rises in Covid would they 
perhaps not exceed that of a basal body temperature rise during a menstrual cycle? I think the key thing is that we don't know enough about that. So we know that for a natural menstrual cycle, certain people experience more of a temperature fluctuation than others. So the temperature increase can be by up to two degrees. But if you start from a, if your baseline temperature is actually relatively high, then that two degrees increase could be meaningful. And our understanding of COVID to date doesn't, highlight the, the level of increase in basal body temperature that is meaningful. So, and again, I would say that's largely because there's not enough research that has been done in women. Um, my advice for anyone out there who is using this as a guide to um, reduce risk or to monitor risk would be to track the menstrual cycle alongside basal body temperature and just be mindful of that increase that can occur in the second half of the menstrual cycle um, and also it's all about finding an individual's norm like there shouldn't be that much variation but also remembering that you know sitting in a car with your aircon on can affect like body surface temperature significantly significantly so thinking of um trying to keep the environment as stable as possible um environmental conditions but also the time of day and the um like physiological state that you're in as stable as possible would be ideal what about your highlights will you see anything this week yeah well first i'm not gonna lie guys i just had to get google what basil meant um <laughs> And Georgie Hill just, just explained. It's before. more like baseline body yeah. temperature. Okay. So mine isn't really a, what, what you'd say a highlight, but um, last week we had a question in about um, using what sanitary protection might be best to use during ultra endurance events. And um, I know we mentioned the, the menstrual cup and it kind of got me thinking about um, what, because they're obviously very environmentally friendly with their usability. Um, and the fact that you use it again and again and again. So I started doing a bit of research into organic or kind of environmentally friendly um, tampons. And I did come across a really good article, which I will put up on the show notes. But um, I did read also, I did a bit of research. So it says that um, in two years of period products, you can go through 528 pads or tampons. And then it, it says that an individual goes through approximately 11,000 disposable pads and or tampons in a lifetime. So um, yeah, you can imagine that, you know, tampon applicators or pads themselves, they're not gonna break down once they're in landfill. So um, I had my little eco-friendly hat on and um, I looked up there's some companies, there was loads of companies that do um, kind of environmentally friendly ones. So I'll put a few of the options um, in the show notes again, just cause it's good for people to be aware of these different options and they might be slightly more expensive than the regular ones that you get in the supermarkets, but it's always worth thinking about the, the impact that, that you're yeah, having on the planet. So um, yeah, that was, that was my little talking point of this week. So today we are talking again about menstrual dysfunctions. Um, so this is part two of our two part series on this. Um, and we are focusing primarily on three more menstrual dysfunctions. So we're going to start with heavy menstrual bleeding, um, then we are going to go to polycystic ovary syndrome, and then we're going to come back to me, who uh, I'm going to talk to you a bit more about premenstrual dysphoric disorder and um, premenstrual syndrome. Um, now, just thinking about this over the last week and thinking about the relevance to everyone out there, um, I just came across a couple of stats, which I thought were quite interesting before I get going. And 
on my spiel about heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, so actually, it's thought that up to 79% of women out there experience menstrual irregularities at some stage in their life. So effectively, that's like a large, a large proportion of the um, female population. And often, in so many instances, we're actually unaware that our situation may be abnormal. Okay, so first, I am going to talk to you a bit about heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, so the first thing to highlight around heavy menstrual bleeding is that it is actually really common. Um, so I did a study as part of my PhD all around heavy menstrual bleeding, and I found that just over a third of marathon runners um, have or meet the criteria for heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, and we also know that um, the, in, across the general population, around a third, so a quarter of a third of women are heavy bleeders. And actually in some data, which I've recently been collecting, like the results actually point to heavy menstrual bleeding being a little bit more common than that. So around 40% of women experience this at some point in their life. Now, the key thing is um, how to diagnose heavy menstrual bleeding. So historically, in <laughs> around the time of the 1960s, um, this diagnosis of total menstrual blood loss was used. So um, a cutoff of 80 millilitres of blood loss or more was defined as heavy menstrual bleeding. However, as you can imagine, actually measuring total blood loss is really problematic. Now we've got menstrual cups, it is a little bit easier, but it's also important to realize that not all menstrual fluid is blood. So um, there's also other components to um, what makes up your menstrual fluid. Um, so it's really important to actually think that, yeah, okay, maybe my blood loss is excessive, but it might not all be blood. Um, also, using an arbitrary number of 80 millilitres is really, in my eyes, um, not very accurate because for me to lose 80 millilitres of blood at just under five foot three, um, compared to someone who's six foot to lose 80 millilitres of blood, that's really very different proportionally. Um, so actually, thankfully, we are moving away from that diagnosis. More recently, there's been a four-part diagnostic series which is used. Um, it's also used by the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and that includes flooding through to clothes or bedding, um, need a need to wear double sanitary protection, so tampons and towels, um, a need to frequently change sanitary products, so typically every two hours, and also the passing of large blood clots. And if you meet two of those criteria or more, then that would be the way we would identify a heavy bleeder. I personally find that a little bit easier to work with than measuring blood, like specific blood loss. However, there is still a degree of um, subjectivity to it. Um, the National Institute for Care Excellence, so that's called the NICE, and that's one of the um, like health governing bodies. Um, they also use a, a very subjective defi definition that deems men, uh, heavy bleeding to be menstrual blood loss that's excessive, that a woman feels interferes with their physical, emotional, social, or material quality of life. So it looks more at the way it affects your quality of life. So back to what I was saying before, it's actually. Um, it's based on one's own perception, but it's the impact of it that really matters. Anyway, so I guess the key thing is that it is a little bit ambiguous, but actually I would say looking at that four-part diagnostic series to think about whether 
that might be you. Um, I think, again, another big thing that I found very common with heavy menstrual bleeding is that um, often there's a genetic component to it. And so your mother might be a heavy menstrual bleeder or your sister might be a heavy menstrual bleeder. And because we don't talk about this, we just think that's normal, but actually it might not be normal. Um, and while we know that 80% or around 80% of heavy bleeding is actually idiopathic, so that means that it's just um, normal, there's no underlying cause for it. It's really important to be checked for underlying causes. Um, and there is this diagnosis called the Palm Cohen um, di like diagnosis or evaluation means to work out whether um, there are any structural or non-structural causes of heavy bleeding, for example, endometriosis, which we obviously spoke about last week. So it's definitely important being checked out for that. Um, okay, so then looking a bit more at the why, um, there is still more research, as with everything I feel like we're saying, um, uh, like there's still more research needed uh, for us to gain a real understanding of why heavy menstrual bleeding occurs and um, effectively then how it can be treated. Um, however, we do know that, so throughout the menstrual cycle, obviously, um, progesterone lines or is very much responsible for the um, development of the endometrial lining. So like looking after the endometrial lining in the, um, I guess, like priming it uh, to be ready for an implantation potentially. And if that doesn't happen, uh, the corpus luteum starts to regress and then there's a withdrawal of progesterone. And this withdrawal of progesterone, so effectively progesterone stops being produced, that causes the endometrial lining, so the lining of the womb, to break down. Um, and this breakdown process, so like removal of kind of this the tissue that builds up causes like a wound. And so effectively every single menstrual cycle, you're having like a wounded womb lining. So your endometrial lining is wounded. Um, and then that needs to repair. And as it, as this whole process happened, there's obviously a release of inflammatory markers. There needs to be loads of um, activation of different cells to come to the area to say like, ah, this needs to be repaired. This needs to be rebuilt again. Um, and there's all this like remodeling process that goes on um, to the specific tissue. Now, this process obviously is like unbelievably tightly managed by the body. And it's so clever if you step back and think about it. Um, but sometimes that process can be um, delayed or uh, the kind of slickness of it can be um, extended. And what research is suggesting is that those with heavy menstrual bleeding have a delayed response to this process. It takes a bit longer for their body to come along and like heal those wounds. So menstruation is like a, a seamless kind of wound healing process. And sometimes the wound healing for some people can take a little bit longer. Um, so that's one, one thought potential cause around um, heavy menstrual bleeding. There's also some nice research that shows that those with heavy bleeding actually have an exaggerated inflammatory response. So again, it, it makes it a little bit harder for that recovery and um, repair process. Um, and also there's some research around um, people with heavy bleeding just taking a bit longer to clot for their blood to clot in that area. To, so effectively just stop the, the blood flow. Um, and I think with all of that in mind, as you can probably tell, actually our 
knowledge or our understanding around the best treatment mechanism mechanisms is quite challenging um but there are some potential options which um i thought i might i would just mention um so again if we focus on the fact that the menstrual cycle is an inflammatory process and those with heavy bleeding have more inflammation obviously managing that would be ideal so going down that anti-inflammatory um behaviors pathway but also for some people they find using anti-inflammatory medication actually really useful um we also know that there's uh some benefit from using certain types of hormonal contraception um often for example the in uh, progesterone only intrauterine device um typically on average reduces blood flow by around 70 percent so that can be advisable however obviously with all um use of hormonal contraception i would strongly suggest people speaking to a medical practitioner first um there's also this thing called tranexamic acid which improves blood clotting um and it effectively alters or stops the activity of this tissue plasminogen factor or activator um so that can decrease blood loss for some um however not for everyone so it's always important to um think that your situation is uh, or think of your situation in isolation and seek medical guidance first um i guess the other key thing obviously with heavy menstrual bleeding is the increased likelihood for iron deficiency or anemia off the back of it um so back to our episode where we spoke about iron deficiency like listening to that and thinking about how you can optimize your iron intake would be really important um we know that uh, around 60 percent of people who are heavy bleeders actually do have iron deficiency and around a quarter have anemia so um it's just really really important to be mindful of that um also through a lifespan some you could you might have been a heavy bleeder when you're a child and you might grow out of that or you might your blood flow might become heavier as you get older or postpartum or something like that so um you know there can be episodic experiences around heavy bleeding um but always i would seek medical input if you um yeah think you might have this just to check Georgie yes just just a quick question off the back of that so um you said one way to treat it might be anti-inflammatory medication is that just as simple as using ibuprofen yeah 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 and while i don't i I would rather not encourage people to go down the route of using anti-inflammatory medication constantly i think with that in mind thinking all things anti-inflammatory around that time is that much more important looking at omega-3 intake potentially even looking at things like curcumin or turmeric as well um i would then say maybe like in the pre-menstrual window like thinking even more about reducing pro-inflammatory foods so you're more uh, like heavily saturated fats and um you know processed foods effectively i would say that that would be probably the way i'd go the route i'd go down and also thinking about like again we know the impact of stress and the impact that stress can have on inflammation and looking at other holistic ways around this without having to jump to um hormonal treatment which you might have to do but i just think by trying to ward off the need initially that's probably the the best thing to do Okay, so our next uh, dysfunction we're going to cover is polycystic ovarian syndrome. So people might know this as PCOS for short. 
And I think this is quite a common entity amongst females. Uh, where I read it's like one in every five women in the UK um, have PCOS, but not all of them might experience the symptoms. Um, I think there's, in terms of my own experience when speaking to sort of clinicians, gynecologists, is somewhat of a discrepancy, a bit like you were saying, Georgie, with heavy menstrual bleeding in terms of the diagnosis around polycystic ovarian syndrome. So sometimes, I think quite perhaps a bit uh, longer ago, that it was like haphazardly given out as a diagnosis without actually looking into it in a bit more detail. Um, so whilst PCOS says polycystic ovarian syndrome, so you think cysts straight away, actually um, what you find if you were to have an ultrasound scan you have like little follicles they're called which are actually different from cysts because they're fluid filled sacs on the ovaries um, and they might cause the actual ovary to become enlarged um, whereas if you have a scan and you've just got some cysts on your ovaries that would be multicystic ovaries rather than polycystic ovaries um, so now to diagnose polycystic ovarian syndrome, they say you need to have one of, uh, or two of three sort of features, um, which would be irregular periods, um, which is, is quite often, um, which obviously Georgie said is, is quite prevalent anyway with these irregularities. Um, excess androgens, so this means that women have a higher level of testosterone. So women have a naturally, um, lower level of testosterone compared to males but we do have some it's quite normal to have testosterone but people with pcos tend to have a much higher level um and this can cause signs of like um facial hair um but or body hair that might not necessarily um be there um if you didn't have um, as higher testosterone levels and then alongside that if you've had a scan and you've got these follicles on your ovaries those are the three sort of diagnoses that are used to confirm polycystic ovarian syndrome. So you have to have two out of the three features to be diagnosed with it. Um, and it's, it's not really a major concern in terms of if you do have that condition, um, as I said, one in five women, so that's quite a lot um, in terms of the whole population. And what I found interesting was that obviously if you had naturally irregular cycles um, or perhaps higher levels of natural testosterone, but you were taking perhaps or contraceptive pill, for example, you might not necessarily be aware that you have polycystic ovarian syndrome because the or contraceptive pill or hormonal contraceptive, whatever it is that you're using, would sort of dampen these um, symptoms, as it were. So it sort of lower the levels of testosterone and make your periods, as it were, even though we know these are withdrawable now. A bit more regular so it might not be until later on in life you then want to say you want to have children that that then becomes an awareness and you become diagnosed with it it often again like George said with homomental bleeding um, PCOS does tend to run in families they're not sure if there's a specific like genetic um, dysfunction as it were or uh, code that causes it, but it does seem to tend to run in families when you look at sort of family history and patient history. Um, another sort of common feature of PCOS is that you tend to find it in people who are overweight, obese, higher BMI, um, or have type two diabetes. So one of the other features of PCOS is that you have abnormal levels of insulin. 
So when you eat food in general, your pancreas releases the insulin hormone in order to control that blood glucose. When you have type 2 diabetes, that control becomes, um, you can't control it basically. You can't control your blood glucose levels because your insulin malfunctions. Now, if you were to have PCOS, this is a particular feature as well. So it might be that you have type 2 diabetes and that causes the onset of PCOS, or it could be the other way around as well. Um, and again, if you were to sort of have a high blood glucose level or high level of glucose intake on top of that, then that just sort of adds to the insulin irregularity or the inability of insulin to regulate your blood glucose levels. So it's a bit of like a spiral, spiraling of events really. Um, I think one thing that people do tend to worry about with PCOS is, you know, does this make it difficult to get pregnant? Because if you do have regular cycles, it can be an ovulatory, so that means you don't often ovulate. Um, so they might particularly be shorter or they might be longer. So obviously that's a concern. Is this going to cause me an issue when trying to get pregnant, whether that's now or later? Um, but I think most people are fine. Um, a lot of celebrities, I remember the back in the day, I think it was Posh Vice. Victoria Beckham came out and said, I have PCOS. And obviously she's got um, a healthy family. Um, so and more and if you sort of search you'd find quite a lot of stories similar to that but now they do have a lot of um, simple medications really that you can take sort of during the window where you want to ovulate so um, I can't it's called clomiphene I think um, I sort of read and that causes you to have ovulatory cycles so if you said okay got PCOS I want to have uh, children you would just take this medication during sort of your that window of opportunity, as it were, um, and that would make your cycles ovulatory and you would still be able to get pregnant um, without a problem, really. And similarly, there's another um, medication called metformin, um, which has sort of been used a little bit for PCOS and sort of regulates the um, it's often used in type 2 diabetes and sort of has links to the insulin levels more so rather than sort of the anovulatory cycles but obviously if you were concerned about anything like this then if you were to discuss it with your GP medical practitioner whatever you want to call them um, then that would be the best way forward um, but like I said most people with PCOS are quite fine um, and might be able to live with the irregular periods um, obviously, if you had dark hairs that were really of a concern, then that's something you can sort of look to get treated or just waxed off. <laughs> and there are things that you can can be done about that. Um, a lot of people with PCOS might um, be told to sort of take the oral contraceptive pill to again provide that regularity of withdrawal uh, bleeds, and also that would then control the. Um, excessive dark hair or the excessive hair growth as well um, and it might actually be that when you if you did get pregnant so if you're on oral contraceptive came off it and you, you got pregnant then the testosterone level might be dampened somewhat because you'd have such a high level of estrogen so you might not actually suffer during that time of pregnancy with like, excessive hair growth as such um, so that might not be of a concern during that stage but yeah I think I think that was it really in terms of PCOS it's not too much of a concern and it's really really prevalent now and I think in my own experiences it's just making sure that you get that 
spot on, the diagnosis spot on, um, because there can be quite a lot of confusion in terms of like multicystic ovaries compared to PCOS. And last but not least, Premenstrual syndrome and premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Premenstrual syndrome is thought to affect anywhere between 20 and 90% of women. Again, um, that is a, a very, potentially a very large number of women, but I think the ambiguity is around um, how it's diagnosed. Um, effectively, premenstrual syndrome is just having um, significant pain or discomfort in the premenstrual period so um, as you are approaching starting your period um, the most common symptoms are mood changes cramps and fatigue but there's obviously as we've spoken about widely a whole range of other symptoms from breast pain breast tenderness to bloating to nausea vomiting um, other forms of GI distress cravings and um, there's a whole host of other things changes in reaction time even um, but premenstrual dysphoric disorder is a little bit different. So as I said, it's, it's a more severe form of premenstrual syndrome, um, but it, it typically causes both emotional and physical symptoms. Um, typically around, or it's estimated that around three to 8% of women have premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And we're actually gonna hear from um, a researcher out at Indiana University um, who experiences PMDD as, as it's known. Um, so a bit more around how to diagnose PMDD. So we know that PMDD can affect our or an individual's ability to work, to socialize and significantly affect their quality of life. Um, the American Psychiatric Association seems to have the, a diagnosis which is most commonly used and that highlights the, uh, a list of both emotional such like affective and behavioral symptoms and typically if women have five of them then it's thought that they have PMDD and the typical symptoms that are associated with this are feelings of upset, um, feeling angry, significant mood changes, increased anxiety, um, feelings of tension or edginess, feeling overwhelmed, um, not having much energy, finding it hard to concentrate, um, apathy, feeling self-depreciating, um, and they're all emotional, affective symptoms. And then the more physical behavioral symptoms would include breast tenderness, aches and pains, bloating, headaches, cravings, sleep disturbances, and just generally feeling um, finding it hard to process emotion and, and feeling upset with general situations. Um, now, as you can tell, a lot of them are very similar to just standard premenstrual symptoms, but for PMDD, typically these occur um, up to two weeks out from when you're actually going to start menstruating, so anywhere from one to two weeks out. Um, and that's as effectively as you enter the second half of your menstrual cycle, the luteal phase. Um, now, I think something i read which i think is actually i mean jess describes and um, jess freemas our guest later describes this a bit more um but it's almost or the feeling is that it's almost like someone presses a self-destruct button um in the build up to menstruating which almost crescendos through a period of time to when you actually start menstruating um now 
because of the nature of this and because of you know the sheer number of people over 90 percent of people experience menstrual symptoms every every cycle it's it is very hard to diagnose pmdd and i think there's a huge amount of emotional stress and distress at wondering why you might feel different and wondering why you know surely every woman experience experiences premenstrual symptoms so why do i seem to be struggling worse and i think again jess will highlight that and touch on it more but i think the key thing here is to track your own cycle track your symptoms and if you're seeing that you really do have an excessive number and um symptoms that go on for a long period of time um in terms of like all the way through the build-up to starting to menstruate i think that's when it's really important to um seek advice and typically i would say have at least three cycles recorded before you go to seek medical input to then say look this is these are the symptoms i'm experiencing and this is when i'm experiencing them um now specifically looking at the causes um there's a few different hypotheses as to why this might be happening and it is likely that um for each individual the etiology so the cause of it might be a little bit different um one thing we know is that some people are more sensitive to the hormonal changes so they have a central nervous system so like their body is more sensitive to the withdrawal of hormones or to changes in hormones generally so it could be that suddenly when they get more progesterone in their body in the second half of the menstrual cycle their body just overreacts or as hormones are reducing um, in the premenstrual window their body again overreacts and finds it harder to process those hormones than um someone else might find um, we also know that both progesterone and estrogen affect the brain significantly and so um, estrogen for example is very associated with the production of serotonin which is a happy hormone and suddenly taking estrogen away can obviously really um, reduce the release of serotonin which could then be a cause for mood disturbances i would say that it's likely if if hormonal sensitivity is the mechanism behind this for an individual i think it's a myriad of different um, reactions that take place which then result in um, a number of different extreme symptoms we also know that there's a genetic component to this so um, often if you might experience pmdd your mother might do your sister might do and it, it might run in the family um, also, there is some suggestion that there could be an immunomodulatory um, effect of it. So it might be that your immune system just um, is overreacting to the menstruation process, which could then result in your symptoms being that much worse and that much more severe. Um, the final thing, which I think is really interesting, and clearly more research is needed around this, but um, I think it's very, very worthwhile investigating, particularly if you think you might have this or someone you know might have it. Um, there is some evidence to suggest that a historical trauma can then cause excessive pain and mental symptoms and PMDD um, further down the line. So um, I've actually seen an example of this where someone I've worked with has had very, very bad um, nausea, vomiting, GI distress, um, but that only came on post a traumatic event um and alongside that they experienced significant mood disturbances just this feeling of worthlessness and i think that in itself is very interesting because looking at helping to manage and process that um real like emotional traumatic time in their life could actually be a means to help manage this situation
So in terms of treatment, now it's, it's difficult because obviously the primary thing that needs to be done is to actually understand why this is going on, why this is happening. Um, I think research is evolving all the time, but actually there is some nice evidence around actually supplementing with calcium. Obviously we would never advise supplementing without having a blood test before to check, but I would 100% suggest having some blood tests as a starting point to check for any deficiencies, to check that everything's um, in good working order. Um, often people are um, advised to take antidepressants or to start using hormonal contraception. Um, I think obviously there is some, in some cases there really is a need for this, but I think, um, trying non-medical routes, obviously I would, I would always advise first, but, um, obviously it's a case by case. Um, I also think that jumping down the hormonal contraception route needs, you need to be very careful with that because if you're putting more hormones into the body where the body's already very sensitive to hormonal changes, that could cause more problems. Again, we're going to discuss this more with Jess later. But I would say kind of from a more holistic point, we do know that things like alcohol, caffeine, smoking, processed foods, all of the things we've talked about, pro-inflammatory behaviors can worsen symptoms. So trying to really, again, focus on avoiding them would be good. Um, the kind of psychological aspects of this condition um, also lead um, research to or us to suggest that managing stress, looking at relaxation techniques, actually CBT as a therapy has been shown to be effective, um, doing mindfulness, yoga, Pilates, all of those things would definitely be worthwhile trying. Um, also because of the uh, susceptibility to increased levels of fatigue, I would say um, ensuring that maybe you might need to get a bit more sleep in that around that time particularly um if you've got a long window where symptoms are really bad um i would also suggest like keeping energy levels like topped up so fueling regularly just to really help your body like constantly stabilize um glucose levels and blood sugar levels i would say that would also be advisable um and also obviously we know the benefits of exercise on um endorphin release in general um mental health so going down that route would also be advisable from my perspective so today we're really pleased to have Jess Freemass speaking with us on our pod. Um, Jess is a researcher at the Indiana University. Jess is also a former soccer player um, and is currently an applied physiologist with USA Swimming alongside all of her research. Um, Jess is going to share a bit more about her story with us today. So hello Jess. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, firstly, Jess, we would just love to hear a bit more about your personal experiences. So starting from when you went through Monarch, so when you started your period, um, it would just be amazing to hear a bit more about the symptoms you're experiencing. And I guess like when you realize that things might be a little bit different for you. Right. Okay. Yeah. So um, let's see, I, I pretty much had a normal Monarchy right when I was 12 years old, um, same as my mom. And I played soccer all through, since I was four on to maybe 18. Um, and I played club intensely until my senior year. And so I didn't really notice any symptoms until I quit club soccer and playing regularly. And all of a sudden in high school, I mean, I was getting 
weeks of severe bloating and irritability. It was really, really bad mood swings, cramps, headaches. Um, I would get migraines once a month that were just debilitating. Um, and I would talk to my friends and I'd be like, oh, I feel so terrible for like a week. For They would get tired of me complaining about my symptoms and they were like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, I don't know. This is like, I have this menstrual cycle issues. I have all these symptoms. And I would come home to my mom and I would say, mom, like, this is not normal. All of my friends think I'm a crazy person. And she's like, no, no, everybody has that. This is all normal. These symptoms are all normal. And I mean, they would last for weeks and she just kept telling me they were normal. And my friends kept telling me I was crazy. And I just felt just, I felt like I was suffering, but I also felt kind of like a crazy person. Um, because a lot of it is um, a couple days of maybe anxiety or depression, or sometimes I just would wake up at 3 a.m. for three nights in a row and there was no explanation and I couldn't fall back asleep. Um, I would get really, really bad nausea and I still get all these symptoms, um, but I figured out a way to manage them. And so I would come home and I would live with five girls in college and I would come home and I just wanted to be alone in my room. I didn't want to hang out with anybody. And I remember my friend who was studying nursing came into my room one day and sat down next to me and was like, Jess, we just learned about premenstrual dysphoric disorder. I think you have it. And I immediately looked it up and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing because I just felt like finally I'm not a crazy person. I can like, this is everything that I, that PMDD was. I had all these symptoms and I just felt like so good to be able to figure out that yes, this is not normal. Yes, I have a disorder because my friends are not feeling the same way. And I quickly realized that my mom had it too, but she just suffered through it back then because it was, I mean, in the 50s, 60s, you know, and they actually diagnosed her with hypothyroidism, which was not correct. And she quickly got off that and hormonal birth controls didn't work for her. And so um, I tried first going to uh, birth control as an option to fix this rate um, because SSRIs are pretty much the treatment, but I don't want to take that for a couple days of depression during the month, you know, and otherwise once I get my period, I feel fine. Just to clarify, when you say SSRI, they're antidepressants, so we would yes. use them antidepressants. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I just, I didn't want to do that. Um, I sort of grew up in a household where we don't really believe in, you know, drugs necessarily, unless you really need it. Um, and so we went herbal routes because the worst symptom was actually bloating for me. I would be just bloated for two weeks and it was horrible. I would get really bad low back pain. And so I started this, what's called borage oil. It's just this herbal supplement um, that's supposed to reduce water retention. And it really helped a lot, actually. Um, my life definitely improved from that. Um, and then I tried some estrogen, birth controls with estrogen, and they didn't work. I ballooned up. Um, I actually became, I think maybe my mood became worse. Um, and then I realized, okay, those don't work. So I just got off any hormonal contraceptives for about like four or five years. And then I finally was like interested in studying this. And so I was like, well, maybe I should switch to a progesterone birth control. And that's actually sort of helped. And I think it regulates that ratio of estrogen to progesterone, which we've talked about, Georgie, um, because my estrogen levels were really high. And so were yeah. my mom's. And so I think there was just like, I'm, there's an imbalance and I'm extremely sensitive to these fluctuations in the brain. And so if you get if you go back to I don't know when you were say like fifteen sixteen and you were mm -hmm. experiencing really bad symptoms like did did you ever go to the doctor at that time or did you sort of wait until your friend said to you hey like this is a normal <laughs> um, yeah so I mean I went to 
so the unfortunate thing is I, my gynecologist was amazing, but she moved to Africa. So I think I was like, I was just switching through a bunch of gynecologists at the time. But um, I remember like sitting in there and telling her about this stuff. And that's when she just was like, Hey, we'll put you on the most common birth control right now. Instead of looking at my hormonal profile. And I just feel like this is a big reason why I got into this because we're our own clinical drug trials, basically for these hormones without even looking at what's going on physiologically before we're prescribed something just because it's the most common and, and that didn't work. Um, and then it took six months to get off it, right. To re-regulate. And then I tried another one. Cause I was just looking for any answer at that point. Cause I still, and it wasn't until college that I realized, Oh yes, like I have this issue now. How do I deal with it? Cause before that I just, my mom kept being like, this is all normal. This is all normal. And just, mm-hmm. you know, not really, I mean, she was, she was empathetic, but she was like, I went through this, so you're fine, you know. Um, and I think that's often so, like, so common because actually we know that these um, gynecological problems often are genetic. So then right. your mom has them, your sister might have them, and they're the people you talk to about this. So then if they normalize it, then you're just like, oh, I'm normal. Exactly. And then I have my friends being like, God, you're being so weird. You're being dramatic. And I'm just like, I'm not. I promise these are real symptoms. Like, I'm not, you know, and... So when you were when you were going through that time, like when you were a teenager and you were still playing soccer, but then you were put on birth control and you bloated and like, did you feel that like affected your want to play sport or your ability to play sport? Like, do you feel it actually affected? Yeah, yeah. So that was actually why that's the biggest reason why I started wanting to study this because I noticed that. Um, so after I stopped playing soccer, I just tried to start running for fitness and. Um, in that phase, that PMS phase, right, I would do my same run and my legs felt like they were running through mud. I just like, I could barely run. My legs felt so heavy. I felt like my whole body was heavy and it felt like so much effort just to move one leg in front of the other for a normal workout. And I was just like, what is going on? Like other people have to be feeling this way. And again, at that time, I don't think I realized how severe I was yet um, compared to the general population. But um, it definitely affected my exercise. And so for a while, I just would stop exercising in that phase, which I've now found that is the most important for, for mood, you know, and health in general and just feeling better. But yeah, it definitely affected my exercise training. So now do you feel like you've got into a good routine of knowing how to manage those symptoms? How did you go about working that out? Like for anyone who has PMDD or might have it, like how would you suggest working that out? Right. I think, I mean, so it is a dysphoric order, disorder. So for a while I was, I was not maybe necessarily ashamed, but I definitely kept this quiet um, and sort of wanted to ignore the fact that this was something out of the ordinary, you know? Um, so I would say the biggest thing is just to accept that you have these severe symptoms and it's okay. And um, actually 5% of women have it, which is a pretty big percentage actually, when you think of these dysphoric disorders. Um, and the biggest thing is just noticing the symptoms. So I think when I, I, I was working with a therapist and I was telling her about this stuff and she was like, stop feeling bad for feeling this anxiety and depression when you know, like this is this disorder you have. So now I accept it. And then I just take care of myself the best I can. But I would say the best way is actually tracking it Um, specifically by using your app. Actually. Um, It's really, really good to see that I have, wow, 10 days of symptoms um, every month. And every single month is different. But ever since I started tracking it and noticing, um, like in the next month, when I start feeling 
maybe a little anxiety. I'm like, okay, this is weird. And I look back at my cycle and my history and I'm like, yep, this is normal. Okay. This is like when I'm, this is when I start feeling this way. So then I just manage it through yoga and exercise and just like trying to love myself as much as possible during that time, honestly, Um, because there's not, there's not much else I can do if I'm not on, you know, SSRIs. And so I try to just manage it with like holistic measures and meditation and yoga and exercise. Did you go to the doctors and, and did they suggest anything? Did they even know about it? Because historically, all these um, mental disorders or dysfunctions have been quite hard to diagnose. And it's taken, we were still talking to a, um, some athletes who have endometriosis and typically that takes seven years to diagnose. Nice. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, I know. That's crazy. Um, actually, that's a great question. No, no gynecologist was like, hey, go home, track your symptoms and come back so we can see if you have this disorder. And that was never brought up to me. Um, when my nursing friend brought it up is when I started to start tracking myself and noticing these symptoms and how long they were and um, how severe and how many I had each month. And um, I just started to start writing it down. And I think a couple of years later, I finally like went to my gynecologist and was like, I've been tracking these symptoms. And they were like, yep, you know, this sounds like PMDD, but it wasn't until I brought it up to them. Um, And there's also like when I've been doing this research, there's some papers out there that come up with specific questionnaires, symptom questionnaires for diagnosing PMDD. So it is self-diagnosable, but I would recommend if somebody thinks they have it to just start noticing, start writing it down. Because if if you do go to a gynecologist, that's what they're going to want from you um, Mm -hmm. to officially diagnose you with it um, and then talk about options. But again, I think the options don't make sense unless they look at your hormonal profile, you know, to see what's out of balance or what you're more sensitive to possibly. Like I said, I tried estrogen hormonal contraceptives and they didn't work. And then when I'm on the progesterone, I feel my symptoms are so much more mild. And you're on right now a a really low dose progesterone option, aren't you? So it's Mm -hmm. not too much of a like hormonal invasion. Right. And it's the IUD. So it's maybe it's supposed to be more localized, right? Because I just clearly was having such large effects when it seemed to be more systemic with a pill. Yes, it's such a it's such a difficult like balancing act of working out like because you don't want to be miserable for half your life because literally for some people it can be like literally half of their cycle but also you need to learn what works for you and it's yeah it's a real challenge so I guess you're still working it out yeah absolutely I mean every I'm just like I take it month by month but I'm just so much happier just being able to be like yep I'm in this phase I'm feeling this way and it sucks but I've gotten so much better at managing it and being social on it and figuring out just like relaxing myself through it kind of I just have to like talk to myself and be like this is you know it just I mean sometimes I would describe it to my friends as like there's a worm or something that just like crawled into my brain and went haywire because I'm not normally an anxious or depressed person at all and all of a sudden um and it and it changes based on like environmental stress so if I'm more stressed in life because of school or um just more psychologically or nutrition isn't right then my symptoms are so much worse And that's when it gets a little bit harder to manage when there's extra stress going on in my life. Um, But otherwise, yeah, I just sort of like calm myself down and I'm like, it's okay. This isn't, I kind of tell myself, it's like, it's not real. Like there's, you're just trying to put anxiety onto something that doesn't really exist because this is hormonal, you know, still sort of feel like a crazy person when I'm telling people my symptoms, you know, and cause I, now I am so good at masking them. I feel like people might be like, what, you know, does she really feel this way? But 
I just, it's never something I've been comfortable talking about. And um, so if there was some, yeah, this is mostly like, I'm so happy to do this because it's just like, I want to bring awareness to this and that this is normal. This happens to people. Um, it's okay. Like it's not, it doesn't mean you're crazy. You know, it's just a hormonal <laughs> sensitivity really. So we have actually had a really interesting question this week um, from a runner actually who um, has been experiencing some bizarre pelvic pain. Now um, she tells us that typically when she's around um, 15 minutes into her run, when she's doing a relatively intense run, she starts experiencing this cramping like pain in her um, like lower abdominal area that feels like menstrual cramps, but she's not actually menstruating. Um, now she says she typically has to stop for a few minutes, walk it off and then can keep running. Um, now this, Typically, she has mapped out her cycle. So it typically occurs in the two weeks before she actually starts her period. Then it stops for two weeks. Then it comes back. Now, she says she's asked some of her friends about it who actually say that they've had it as well. Um, but she can't find out anything about it online. And she's asked whether we might have any more ideas or any ideas specifically. Um, Interesting question. Yeah, really interesting. So obviously the first thing I think we must say is that like it's not normal to experience pain like that on a regular basis. So seeking medical input would be the first port of call. However, um, also stepping back and looking at a few potential hypotheses that could explain this. So obviously we know in the two weeks before you're just about to start menstruating, that's where progesterone levels increase. So it could be a sensitivity to the progesterone. Um, also, so it could be something to do with the vascular shunt then affecting that um, specific area. So we know that when we exercise um, at a relatively intense level, our blood is effectively shunted away from our um, like non-essential areas and taken to the areas that need it more. So for example, the muscles, but it could be that the removal of the blood to that specific area could be causing pain. Jess, do you have any thoughts? Um, I would definitely, like you said, seek medical guidance because um, especially if you're suffering it for like two weeks every cycle, it's quite a long time. Um, so, you know, don't shy away from that. But one thing that might just be worth just making sure that's okay in terms of sort of gut um, issues, make sure you're really hydrated, you're not dehydrated when you're running. Because um, even though it feels lower down, it could be coming from sort of the the latter end of your intestines sort of thing. Um, and perhaps trying some prebiotics specifically, um, just as a bit of digestive support um, that might alleviate symptoms a little bit. Um, if it doesn't, then you know you've sort of tried it anyway. Also, actually just had another thought. Um, there is some evidence to suggest that irritable bowel syndrome um, can be... Um, made worse by progesterone so it could be that you might have a degree of irritable bowel syndrome or just a sensitivity there which is then exacerbated in the second half of the menstrual cycle when um, progesterone comes into play. One thought I just had was um, whether you know this runner this particular runner had um, just changed her method of contraception or maybe it was like a couple of months down the line because when I first had the IUD put in I would get menstrual cramps quite often randomly and um, exercise would bring it on as well so I don't know maybe that could be potentially um, another thing to think about yeah great show 
We'd like to thank Jess Freemass for opening up about her experiences with PMDD and hopefully enabling increased awareness and recognition of the disorder for other women. For next week's episode, we'll be focusing on menopause and perimenopause and would like to hear about your experiences. If you've been through the menopause or are currently going through it and would like to join us on the pod to discuss, then please email us at femaleathletepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>